0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the PA Path Podcast. Today, we have a special episode where we interview our very own Stephanie Vandermeulen. As you may know from our many podcasts together, Steph is the chair of the Department of Health Professions, and she is the program director of the Creighton University School of Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. Steph is also past president of the PA Education Association, and she served on that board as director-at-large for two terms before her presidency. Steph and I just returned from the PA Education Association's annual forum in New Orleans, and I had several educators recommend that we ask Steph to come on as a guest to share her presentation that she gave at the forum this year on creating a positive program environment. She spoke about intentionality as it relates to setting the culture, and we're going to hear from Steph about that topic. This deviates a bit from our student focus, But our second largest audience includes PA educators, so it seemed worthy of our episode today. This episode is supported by the Southern Illinois University Medicine Online Doctor of Medical Sciences degree program, now enrolling for 2024. Well, Steph, welcome, and thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. I know when we were in New Orleans last week, several of the educators, including some very well-respected podcasters, brought up your name to me and, and to you and encouraged us both to include this topic on our podcast. And it seemed like it would make sense to do it right away just so we could relive the experience a little bit while it's fresh in our minds. So why don't we start with this? Why is this topic so important?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. This has been a bit of a project of passion for me. Um, I spent a couple of years trying to get this topic accepted as a talk at PAEA because Really, as I interact with people from other programs and, you know, other PA educators, I hear this over and over that it's tough. We see a lot of turnover in PA education. You know, people come in. They have a passion for education and they start to really get their chops about them. They spend two to three years learning how to be great educators. And, you know, due to a number of factors that, you know, we can talk about here in a few minutes, people get tired, they get burnout. Cultures aren't fantastic in PA programs sometimes. They don't have institutional support. And there are just a lot of factors that contribute to the general culture that leads to people leaving clinical practice. And so I felt it was really important to kind of examine that a little more closely. And look at um, what some of those factors are and, more importantly, with an eye to what educators and particularly the leaders of PA education programs can do to try to influence some of those factors and try to make the culture a little bit better so that people stay.
0: Steph, why, why do faculty leave? What is the predominant factor for faculty moving to other programs or, or in many cases, going back into clinical practice?
1: There's no one answer to that. And I think that no faculty, at least anecdotally in my experience, no faculty leaves for just one reason. I think it's a lot of things I always like to refer to as kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, things pile up and they pile on. And I think at some point, you know, maybe there is a single event or a single factor that that is the straw that broke the camel's back and, and drives them out the door. But, you know, I think typically it tends to be a little bit more of a cumulative effect. And so what the research shows is that there are a number of faculties that contribute to faculty attrition, everything from poor organizational support, gaps in mentorship, lack of adequate recognition, parity, equity and workload, opportunity for advancement. If there's a conflict in conflict the, in the workplace, if there's a lack of sense of community, comparatively low salaries, lack of research opportunities. I mean, these are really all reasons that that faculty tend to find it less desirable to to work in programs. And so, you know, when we look at the most recent survey that PAEA did, the Faculty and Directors Report, which was Report Number Four, which was a little bit older at this point, but rumor has that there's a new one coming out. But this was Report Four that was done back in 2019, so this would be data from 2018. What we what we know is that they break this down by the top five stressors and, you know, surveyed faculty, program directors, and medical directors. But what we see, interestingly, and shouldn't be surprising to anyone who is a PA educator or knows PA educators, the number one top stressor in all three categories, faculty, program directors, and medical directors, is self-imposed high expectations. So I think that kind of speaks to who we are. We tend to be very driven, very type A folks, and and we drive ourselves pretty hard. And so, you know, I think it's important to note that, that we are sometimes our own worst enemies. But when you look across the other categories, we see, you know, other stressors that ranked high in all categories that are pretty similar across the categories. And that's increased work responsibilities, institutional red tape, managing home managing household responsibilities, a lack of personal time, you know, these are all things that contribute to stressors in the workplace. And then, you know, similarly, that same report looked at the least satisfying aspects of the job and it ranged from everything from low salary to lack of research opportunities, poor institutional leadership, tenure requirements, you know, lack of promotion potential. Those are all things that contribute to a lack of satisfaction in the job. And so, you know, what we know, according to this survey, that in the preceding two years, so in the two years prior to when that data was collected, 43% of faculty and over 47% of program directors considered leaving academia for another job, 32.5% of faculty and 43.8% of program directors considered leaving their current institution for another institution, and 16.1% of faculty and 28.1% of program directors considered retiring. So, you know, that is a lot of people who are considering leaving academia, leaving their institutions, or just retiring altogether. And so I have to believe that lack of job satisfaction and frustration with the academic environment is contributing heavily to that. When I looked here recently at the PAEA jobs website, which is kind of a central place where people go to look for PA education jobs, over the last six months, there were over 120 jobs posted on the jobs board there. So people are really moving around which suggests that there's lack of satisfaction and even above and beyond the attrition of faculty you know general attrition of faculty we're also seeing a huge loss in diverse faculty nowhere is there more loss of faculty than than we're seeing in persons of color and people from diverse backgrounds and i think there are some unique factors that lead to loss of of diverse faculty some of those include resistance to diversity efforts. So you know, maybe there are institutional initiatives going on around diversity, but they just continue to experience resistance to those efforts. Oftentimes, the individuals of color or the individuals from minority backgrounds or underrepresented individuals are the ones that are tasked with shouldering all of the diversity efforts. So they see excess responsibility for diversity efforts, and oftentimes those are ladled on to their regular duties and they don't really see a lot of recognition or appreciation for that it's just considered to be kind of part of their job they experience bias both implicit and explicit and microaggressions in the workplace they feel isolation lack of community and they experience lack of administrative support at a higher rate than other faculty do they also have lack of professional guidance and mentorship and i think another one that is very prevalent is is duplicity or lip service you know maybe the institution has initiatives around diversifying their their student body or their workforce, or, you know, maybe they say that they want to do a curricular revision that's more inclusive, or they have a holistic admissions process that is targeted at diversifying their student body. And they say those things, but in action and in practice, those don't really exist. And so, you know, those are all factors that I think impact diverse faculty more so than they do others. So, you know, what are all of the things, and I've kind of categorized all of the things that impact program culture into five buckets. And so I I put together a mnemonic for this so that it's a little bit easier to remember. So my mnemonic is COBRA, C-O-B-R-A, like the snake. So those stand for communication, opportunity, balance, relationship and respect, and acknowledgement. And I think COBRA is a little bit fitting. Because you know you, you kind of got to be careful with with as with any snake, if you make it unhappy, if you upset the balance and and these five factors that contribute to program culture, it will definitely bite you,
0: Steph. in your talk, you have a slide on communication and and you you basically talk about the importance of regular channels of communication. And I always struggle as a leader with what is too much of a good thing versus what is too little. So how do you find that balance? to ensure that your team is getting the communication they need, but not being inundated with unnecessary meetings or, or emails?
1: Yeah, finding that balance of communication is really difficult. And so, you know, the C in COBRA is communication. And, you know, we think about communication in both formal and informal channels. And I think that is difficult. And, and it may vary from time to time, depending on what work the group is doing, you know, what initiatives the team is undertaking, and and what things are happening in your in your program. There may be times during an accreditation period per se that, you know, you may need a lot more frequent formal communication. You may be doing bi-weekly meetings to just say, okay, how's everybody doing on their pieces? You know, what can we do? What can we help you with? What do you need input on? Whereas there may be other times where people are, you know, kind of in their groove and on autopilot and doing their thing and you just don't need that much communication. So I think that's one of the challenges of leadership to really find where that balance is. And so, you know, formal communication kind of comes in by means of more regular channels of communication. So whatever that looks like, whether it's weekly faculty or staff meetings, you know, weekly team meetings. So, you know, people meeting around task specific areas. So, you know, is your academic team meeting regularly? Is your clinical team meeting regularly? You know, is staff involved? And maybe there's specific staff meetings. Additionally, there needs to be good communication from program leadership as a conduit between the faculty and upper administration in the institution? And is that going both directions? So does the faculty feel as though the program leadership is acting as an advocate and an ambassador on their behalf at the upper administration tables that they may sit at? And, you know, similarly, do they feel like the program leadership is demonstrating transparency around what's happening at the university level? You know, is there that kind of bi-directional flow of, of information? And, you know, similarly also I think it's important for program leadership to be doing check-ins with individual faculty and staff on a regular basis. Particularly if you have newer or less experienced faculty, there should be regular touch points between program leadership and individual faculty as they onboard to just kind of see how they're doing, what they may be struggling with, where they may need some additional attention or some mentorship. And then there's the the informal communication. And, you know, there's something that I refer to as as water cooler magic. That for me is, you know, how much opportunity is there for program faculty and staff to just be in person and have those informal opportunities, you know, we used to say over the water cooler, but, you know, just sitting in the conference room and having lunch together at lunchtime, or just being able to stop into one another's office, you know, to touch base or ask a quick question. I think all of those things are really critical pieces. There's a lot that happens. There's a lot of business that's done and progress that's made. In the spaces in between big work. And that only can really happen when people are co located with one another. And so, you know, that kind of brings up that difficult topic of of the right balance. And we'll talk about balance a little bit when I get to that point. But is everyone working remotely or, you know, hybrid to the point where there isn't a lot of opportunity for people to just actually have sort of unstructured, unscheduled time to have some of that water cooler magic? Are your offices located in the same place or are people kind of scattered around campus? Do you have kind of a, a group text or a group me or some ability for people to sort of stay in touch and say, hey, I'm working from home today, or hey, I have a dentist appointment this afternoon, but I'll be in at two o'clock just so that people can kind of keep connected. The part that I think sometimes gets a little bit prickly with some people, and that's informal communication, like group outings. So, you know, it's some of that team building that sometimes takes place that some people don't like. You know, some people, they consider it forced fun when you do team building type exercises. But what we know is it's really important for people to be familiar with one another and to have some time outside of work or outside of work tasks to become familiar with one another and understand each other on a little bit deeper level. And we'll talk about that a little bit more coming up as well. So, the O in Cobra is opportunity. And, you know, I think that is another really critical piece in the satisfaction of really anybody. I mean, people want to know that they have opportunity to grow and to develop. You know, people get bored when they become stagnant. And so, you know, when we think about opportunity, we think about a number of different ways that you can consider faculty opportunity. So first is advancement. You know, are there opportunities for lateral or upward mobility within the program or the institution? You know, can someone maybe if they're they start as a general faculty member, is there the ability for them to move into maybe the director of didactic education or director of clinical education? So are there positions that may offer them some additional administrative responsibilities that would constitute advancement for them? And then when we think of institutions and universities, we think about promotion and tenure. So, you know, what are the opportunities for PA program faculty and are they equitable opportunities for promotion and tenure compared to others in the institution? So are they able to put themselves up for promotion to a higher faculty rank? So going from maybe instructor to assistant professor to associate and then full professor. And then tenure, you know, is is tenure an option or is it required? What does tenure track look like? You know, when is it the right time to to develop a process towards tenure? And is it attainable? So, you know, those are those are things that leadership in the in the program should be considering with their faculty and should be really thinking about each faculty member's unique path towards promotion and tenure. Next is faculty development. And so I think about faculty development in two different ways. And, you know, first of all, are there funds available for them to attend meetings or conferences or other faculty development activities, even within the institution, for them to develop those skills that they need to continue to improve and develop as a as an educator? Above and beyond that, is there time for them to actually participate in those activities. Because that's, I know, something that that even I personally have found with our team is that we've got great faculty development funds and support for that. But people are so busy, they say, you know, it's great that there's that money there and that opportunity there, but when am I going to get away? When am I going to have time for that? So I think that you really have to think about faculty development from both of those perspectives. Or if it's somebody who has an interest in research, is there protected time for them for research or special interests to develop? And then finally, mentorship. Those are all factors that lead into opportunity. So, you know, definitely a, a big piece of faculty satisfaction in, in the workplace. You know, when I think about opportunity and when I think about leadership's responsibility for developing faculty, you know, different faculty may have different goals. You know, some faculty may express that desire to continue to advance in the administrative Leadership role. They may want to go from faculty to maybe associate program director, or then to program director, and maybe even have a decanal aspirations to become maybe an assistant or associate dean at some point. Whereas other faculty say, "Hey, you know, that's not really a direction that I see myself heading, but I really want to flourish as a academician in the role that I'm in right now." And so I always kind of compare it to, if you know anything about horticulture, I compare it to a bush called an arbor vitae. And if you know anything about arbor vitae, they're a very tall, thin kind of pencil-shaped bush that, and they grow upwards. And, you know, that's just kind of the habitus of that plant is that they tend to be on an upward trajectory. And then I compare that to maybe a hosta. And if you know anything about hostas, they're a, you know, beautiful shade plant. You know, they just grow and they just continue to flourish. And they if you give them the right amount of sunshine and the right amount of water and allow them to go, they will just keep spreading and spreading and developing in an outward fashion. And so, You know, whether you have faculty that are more Arbor Vitae-like, that you know that they would like to climb through the levels of administration, or if they're more hostile-like, or maybe they're somewhere in in between, regardless of what their aspirations are and what direction they want to grow, you have to make sure that they have the light and the sunshine and the water and everything that they need to grow in the direction that they want to grow. Because again, we know that if we're not growing, we're growing stagnant. So, you know, I think, again, I had mentioned that, that it's important that the leadership of programs, understand their institution's promotion and tenure guidelines, and are having regular touch points with faculty, you know, whether that's through your annual faculty evaluations, to kind of monitor progress and plan goals around what that faculty member's desires are and aspirations are to achieve promotion and tenure and make sure that they're making progress in all of the areas that are important for them to progress in to be on track to achieve promotion and or tenure. So the B in COBRA stands for balance and that, you know, balance in a number of ways. So we think about balance and is there balance of work across the team? You know, are people feeling like they're equally yoked and everybody's pulling their weight equally? And along with that, is there a good distribution of desirable versus undesirable work? No job is free of some tasks and duties that nobody really loves or nobody really wants to do. But work should be balanced such that everybody has their own share of the stuff that they want to be doing and the things that nobody really wants to do, but everybody knows has to get done. And so making sure that there's no one person, you know, you don't dump all of the undesirable work on the person who, you know, maybe the new person, you know, that's not that's not really fair. And it's certainly not a a good way to, to develop and grow new faculty is to dump all the work that nobody else wants to do on them. I think another important aspect of balance is establishing a culture of mutual assistance. And that is, you know, there are going to be times when some people are more busy than other people and, you know, somebody's staggering under the weight of all the things that kind of attacked them all at once and maybe somebody else has got a little bit of breathing room. And, you know, establishing that culture of mutual assistance is really about having an environment where if somebody's really burdened down and they're falling behind, that A, Other people recognize that and say, hey, I see that you've got a lot going on. Like, I'm busy, but I probably could help you, you know, take part of that grading. Or, you know, is there a lecture that I could pick up for you? Or is there something that I can do to help you out to get through this really busy period? And also, you know, the culture that is psychologically safe enough for somebody to say, I'm drowning, and I really need somebody to help me and to not fear retribution or, you know, fear people are going to think that they're not pulling their weight or that they can't handle their jobs. And so that culture of mutual assistance could not be more important. And then finally, you know, I think along with balance, it's really important for leaders to have clear delineation of roles. And, you know, people need to understand, you know, what their job is and what the kind of the boundaries of their job are. And, what's their responsibility, what's someone else's responsibility, and what's shared responsibility. And, you know, those areas of shared responsibility, kind of what that collaboration should look like. And so, you know, I think there's a fine line between leaders being micromanagers and leaders just defining boundaries and allowing people to, you know, kind of flourish and work within those boundaries. But, you know, if there isn't great role delineation, oftentimes you have people that are Stepping over each other, you know, stepping on top of each other, trying to do the same work, you know, working on the same thing, or everybody thinks it's somebody else's job and, you know, then nobody's doing the work. And so that clear lines of understanding about, you know, what people's roles and responsibilities are really important as well you know, when we think about balance, we think about the, I I call it the relative myth of work-life balance. You know, I'd like to think that there's this perfect way to balance everything so that you can be everything at work and everything at home that you think you need to be. And frankly, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't think, I don't think there's anybody that could say that, you know, when they're at work, they're probably feeling sort of guilty that they're shirking some sort of duties at home. They should be home with their kids or, you know, they're going to be late to their kids' soccer practice or whatever that looks like and conversely when you're at home you know you'd like to be present and in the moment with your family but in the back of your mind you're thinking oh man i've got this to do and that to do and i, I really should have stayed late at work tonight but i had to leave and you know I, we all deal with that and and i think that to think that that's ever going to go completely away is probably a little bit of a foolish pipe dream but to the extent that we can facilitate the ability for people to flex their work and flex their lives so that they are able to make their work fit around their life rather than their life fit around their work. I think that should be the goal. That includes things like considering flexible schedules. So time flex, you know, can, they, can someone come in a little bit later and work in the evenings um, so that they can get their kids off to school? You know, do they have the ability to work at home on days where they don't have anything in the office, you know, meetings or academic activities that they have to be physically present for? You know, I think trying to establish a culture where no one's taking advantage of that but people truly have the ability to flex their time and flex the location where they're working so that they can kind of try to strike the the work life balance that works best for them. And then I think finally with balance one of the biggest things that we can do that I think we tell our students this all the time and that is time away is time away. And that means when somebody is out on vacation or even on the evenings and on the weekends, you know, that should be a culture that's clearly articulated to the students and expectations set with students. But we have to set that expectation, and leaders need to model that, you know what, it's not a badge of honor to be working every night and every weekend and, you know, have working vacations. We wouldn't ever want our students to live like that. And so we need to take responsibility for role modeling that. And it's fair to our team to expect them that when they're off, they should be off. They should not have to be checking work emails and answering phone calls and that. And so, you know, just like we tell our students, like, you need some downtime, you need break time, you'll be more effective when you're on If you take some time off, that's important for the workplace as well. Our students are at this hard for the usually the the didactic phase of the program. And we're like, you know, you got to take breaks. You got to get through this. Our faculty is probably working just as hard on a day to day, year to year basis as our students are during the didactic phase. But we don't seem to set that same expectation for our faculty and our staff as we do for our students, and I and I think that that's really contributing to wearing people down and and contributing to burnout. So the R in Cobra is relationships and respect, and you know this is a big one. This has everything to do with the way that people interact with one another and kind of what the ground rules and the rules of engagement are in your among your team and in your workplace and. You know, I always tell people positive interpersonal relationships are at their core. They're based on respect. And, you know, friendship in the workplace is optional, but respect should be expected. You know, you don't have to love everyone that you work with. You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to socialize outside work, but you do have to treat each other with respect. And that should be the underpinning of of all interactions in the workplace. And so Positive working relationships—they're rooted in a very deep understanding of one another, and that's hard sometimes in the workplace to know one another—you know—in a way that allows you to work effectively. There are a lot of different personality inventories. There's, you know, and I'll mention a few. This, these aren't endorsements. I don't—I don't have any uh, affiliation with any of these. But like a, the DISC profile or the—you know—the Gallup Strengths Finder or Myers-Briggs. There are all kinds of different tools that can be utilized to help faculty members and you know the team as a whole understand each other a little bit better and understand how we communicate, how we work with one another. And I think understanding who someone is and how they communicate and how they prefer to work and understand information and process information, it's really important. And it's important for leaders to understand that about team members too, because it's important to assign people to work that is most fitting with the way that they work and the way they interact. If you have people that are very detail-oriented and they like a lot of direction and they really like to be kind of in the weeds on things, then that's the kind of work that they're going to excel in. And they should be placed in positions and given responsibilities that are closer to that. Whereas, you know, if you have people on your team who are super strategic and, you know, they really like to try to see around corners and what's coming down the pike and you know, then they're the ones that you want on your strategic planning team and aligning people with the work that's more fitting with with what they do can really help those working relationships and and getting people in the in the right areas. Creating a culture where everyone's voice is heard is critically important as well. You really need to create a culture of psychological safety where everyone Feels as though their voice is heard and not only just heard, but also considered as decisions are being made. You know, not everything is going to be a democracy, but you should have a a culture in which respectful dissent is not only encouraged, but embraced. You need someone to be the devil's advocate to say, okay, I hear everyone saying, you know, this. But have we thought about it, maybe from the position of a different stakeholder, or have we thought about, you know, if something else could be true? Have we thought about alternatives to this as the only solution? Having the ability and embracing dissenting ideas it allows for more thorough exploration of issues. It it combats groupthink, and it contributes to you know an environment of inclusivity and a, that culture of respect. Because when people feel like they aren't afraid to open their mouths and dissent on the the popular opinion, it means that you are much more effective in the way you're functioning as a team. So again, you know, an environment of inclusive behavior and interpersonal connection creates that culture of psychological safety. It invites authenticity. It validates people's feelings and it makes them feel as though their ideas are respected. So it really creates that sense of, of community. And it's important to remember that anytime you have a change in your team, Even a single change in the membership of your team, whether one person leaves or one person comes on, or, you know, in some cases, maybe you're hiring two or three new people, whether those are faculty or staff, every time there's a single change in the membership of the team, it completely changes the dynamic of the team. And so it's it's incumbent upon leadership of programs to anticipate that you know we can't always anticipate when there's a change sometimes people leave and it's a bit unexpected but we should be prepared for that and as leaders of a team you have to say okay i know that this is going to be a change how am i going to help my team prepare for that flex to you know maybe changes in roles and responsibilities and maybe changes in leadership of the team because of a new person coming in or someone leaving and how are we going to navigate through that change you know so again trust respect and communication are the are the central tenets of a positive working relationship team building you know i'd mentioned team building activities before and you know again some people view those as forced fun but just like any other relationship even the interpersonal relationships that you have in your personal lives they require care and feeding. They require constant work. And so if you're not constantly working on the environment and the relationships that exist in your workplace, then they're going to deteriorate. And so I think fostering that familiarity and understanding of one another as humans and developing those trust relationships, developing respect, and those effective communication skills, those are critically important to the ongoing health of your team. And then finally, the A in COBRA is acknowledgement. And, you know, people deserve an, an girl or an boy or an person. They, they really deserve acknowledgement for the work that they're doing. And so, you know, there should be both formal and informal mechanisms by which people are acknowledged for the hard work that they're doing and the accomplishments that they have made. And so, and that needs to come from program leadership, but it also needs to be part of the culture as well, where people acknowledge one another one of the best ways that we can acknowledge the hard work and the good work that people are doing is compensation. And I'll get on my soapbox for just a moment on this one, because, you know, one of the problems that I think we have in, in academia, and I know that there are barriers to solving this, I'm I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't barriers to this, but one of the self-fulfilling prophecies and problems that we have in academia is that we continue to benchmark against other academicians' low salaries comparatively low is if we compare those to what faculty can make in clinical practice. And we look at the like the PAEA salary survey and we say, oh yeah, we, we don't make as much as, as clinically practicing PAs. I guess I would ask, why? Why not? Why is the work that we're doing shaping the next generation of PAs not as important as what clinical PAs are doing in the lives of patients? It's also important. And if we continue to benchmark against the same low salaries of other academicians, we're going to keep getting the same low salaries. And so I am a strong proponent for making the case for getting academician salaries closer to the salaries of practicing clinicians, because if we don't, you know, we're going to bring these great, wonderful minds who are excited about academia into the academic workplace. And, you know, we're going to train them up and they're going to spend that first two or three years, you know, getting up to speed. And then, you know, all of these factors that we've just talked about are going to contribute to burnout and they're going to become tired and they're going to look around and they're going to say, I can make as much, if not plenty more in the clinical setting that I can make here. So like, why am I toiling away doing this with no recognition and this poor environment when I can make more money? And and that's contributing to the churn that we're seeing in the academic setting. And so I'm standing on my podium and shouting from the rooftop, you know, we need to start benchmarking against clinician salaries so that we stop the hemorrhage of PA faculty out of academia and back into clinical practice. So acknowledgement is really an area that, Kevin, I'm really kind of interested in hearing a little bit about you, about maybe some of the ways that you found are good ways to acknowledge your faculty.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Steph, to be honest. When I first started working as a program director at my second program, I actually took advantage of a leadership practice inventory that was It is a great tool that's been produced by Kuzis and Posner, and it essentially assesses 30 leadership behaviors. And in 2014, I did that assessment, basically a 360-degree evaluation with your direct reports and your supervisor. And I was surprised to see that one of the, the areas that I was weakest in was acknowledging or celebrating victories or achievements of my colleagues. And so that was an area that I really tried to improve upon. And I did a couple of things. One is I asked my assistant to calendar for me all the important anniversary dates and birthday dates of our colleagues so that we could ensure that I was paying attention to those things and calling people out. We also had a committee that started to look at ways that we could celebrate together. Things that we added included a Thanksgiving celebration where every year at Thanksgiving on the day that the students had departed, we would have our own Thanksgiving celebration where we all wrote notes to each other anonymously about what we love about each other, what things we appreciated about each other's uh, contributions to the team culture. I still have some of those letters from years ago because of that experience. I think it's a great way to acknowledge one another and to celebrate each other's positives that they bring to the work culture. Those are a couple of the things that we did that I thought contributed to maintaining a Fun culture to work and live in. So from your perspective, what is the role of leadership in establishing and maintaining program culture?
1: Yeah, I think the role of leadership is huge. Certainly, every member of the team has a part to play in establishing this culture. And I think there needs to be some discussion around culture, even doing some exercises and saying, hey, you know, let's talk about our culture. Let's talk about our rules of engagement and, and how we're going to function in this workplace and, you know, have some sort of guiding principles. And I'm not talking about guiding principles for, you know, what our goals are for the program and the student and that kind of thing. I'm talking about guiding principles around, you know, who we are as a team and how we are going to function as a team and really getting buy-in from the whole team on that. You know, then if there are problems, if, you know, if someone is sort of consistently breaking the, the rules of engagement, then you can go back to that and say, hey, we decided as a team, that this is how we were going to function, and this was the level of respect we were going to show one another, and this was how we were going to communicate. Can you please help me understand how this behavior that I'm seeing from you is consistent with our guiding principles? And so I think it kind of sets, not only gets everybody on the same page and gets everyone engaged and bought into this idea of culture, You know, set some framework and some structure so that when people are stepping outside of those expectations, then you kind of have some framework with which to kind of help realign them in that. You know, there's an old saying that says people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. And that's really true. The way that the manager or the leader, in, you know, in this environment, the way that you respond to conflict and respond to um, situations and, you know, lack of safety, lack of opportunity, lack of resources, your team is, is really looking to you to help them navigate through that. And I think that can be a little bit problematic from the perspective of leadership, because there's a fine balance between feeling like you have to fix everything because you know, that becomes a a problem for, for leadership as well. You can't be the sole person who's responsible for fixing everything. But at the same time, you do have responsibility to facilitate resolving some of these problems. And so, you know, while it may not be fully your responsibility to fix it, it certainly is your responsibility to make sure that the team is approaching problems or lack of opportunity, you know, name your issue approaching those in a healthy, constructive way so that you can kind of lead through that time of difficulty and lead through change. When we talk about the traits of effective leaders, like what does it look like to be that effective leader that can help your team navigate through that? Effective leaders have good emotional awareness. They're in tune to the culture and the environment around them. And when someone is struggling or when someone is suffering, they you know have humanism they they see their colleagues and their coworkers first as humans and you know second as faculty members or staff members or, or you know whatever their role might be but you know what is the human impact of what's going on the collective constellation of what's going on in their lives and how how might that be impacting them so you know kind of that ability to empathize and put yourself in someone else's shoes leaders should be results focused and really more outward facing than self-focused and you know have that kind of introspective mindset. They should have authenticity and vulnerability and transparency. They should, you know, they should be transparent in the decisions that they're making and, you know, what they're trying to do on behalf of the team, you know, advocating for on behalf of the team. And really, you know, again, I think when it comes down to it, it's really about creating an environment and facilitating and being the leader of creating an environment of positive culture and psychological safety.
0: Let's take a quick break.
1: Hey, PAs. Ready to move forward in your career? Enroll in an online Doctor of Medical Science degree with Southern Illinois University Medicine. In one year, they can help you build confidence, refine your clinical or educational skills, and help you become a better advocate and leader. Best yet, you can earn 37 Category 1 CME credits for your coursework without leaving your job or family behind. To learn more and to apply, visit siumed.edu forward slash DMSC.
0: Steph, when you talk about relationships and respect, you talk about creating psychological safety, and I think this is one of the most important foundational things of a successful leader. And I wonder what are those things that help you do that? Because first and foremost, creating psychological safety, in my mind, means that you need to, to be able to have the humility to set that tone and to be seeking feedback from people that report to you and, and to be looking for ways to improve and to acknowledge that you're not perfect. So I imagine that that is part of what you've done, but talk a little bit more about psychological safety and how that has worked for you.
1: Yeah, psychological safety. I think first and foremost, it goes back to the, like you said, the relationship and respect. And I, I think it is is truly about facilitating the relationships between individuals. And I think, you know, I'm lucky in that I have a good number of our team members who have worked together and have known one another for a long time. So there's that familiarity that comes with, you know, having limped through the loss of parents and, you know, the spouse's loss of position and children growing up and graduating from high school and college. And, you know, there's some of that just familiarity. There's some of that familiarity that breeds a sense of trust and respect with one another that even when you don't agree with one another, because you've shared lived experiences, that comes with time. And so, you know, if you have a group of people that have worked together for a long time, I think it's helpful because, you know, again, that familiarity breeds respect. In, in response to your question, like, how do you get that when maybe you've got newer members of the team that don't know each other well enough? And and I don't think there's a, there's a secret sauce to that. You know, I, I think we're still working through that with some of the newer members of our team versus the more established members of the team and folks that have worked together for a long time. But I think it, it kind of comes down to just continuing to go back to we respect one another. And first and foremost, you know, we're working not only with one another, but we're working for one another. And I think we do a lot of reminding one another of kind of what we're doing this for. We do have the shared goal of academic excellence and creating a positive educational experience for students and creating PAs that are gonna go out there and be competent, effective clinicians and, and change the world. And you know, so I think we're bound with our collective goal and we just remind each other a lot that while we don't always see eye to eye, it's okay. We don't have to. And, you know, the variety is the spice of life and we can all have different opinions as long as at the end of the day, we're moving moving the ship forward. And I think that's what it comes down to. I think from a leadership perspective, it's really, we all kind of have the same goal of how we want to get there. Let's talk about different ways and, and different people's ideas and kind of come together and compromise on the path forward and what and what it means to get there to that shared goal or that shared destination. Because at the end of the day, the culture, it starts with the leader. Your team, if you're the leader of your team, your team wants to know that you care about them as human beings and that you're invested in the success of not only the program, but the students, that they are willing to work as hard as they are, that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get in there and get dirty and do the work, that you wouldn't expect anything of your team that you don't expect of yourself, that you wouldn't do yourself. They want to know that you're advocating for them. They want to know that you're transparent in your decision-making. You know, maybe you make a decision that isn't consistent with the will of the team. But, you know, at least if you can articulate, okay, I, I know you guys kind of wanted decision A. I ultimately ended going with decision B. But here's why. Here was my rationale and here were the factors that led to that. And I think as long as you are can articulate transparency even if not everyone will necessarily agree with you they will at least understand that you know you had reasons and you could articulate those and and you had some logic behind those you know i think showing some vulnerability is really important they want to know that you are human and that you own your own mistakes you know what as leaders <laughs> boy i make mistakes all the time and and i don't anticipate that changing anytime soon and it's going to happen and i think if you can just step back and say you know this was a situation where the outcome wasn't great And the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the lens on me and say, what was my part in that? You know, how did I contribute to the outcome that wasn't as desirable as we hoped it would be? And, you know, did I make a mistake? Could I have handled this better? And I think as long as you're willing to own those steps or, you know, say, gosh, I kind of wish I could have that back. And I wish I could change that a little bit, you know, being open to that constructive feedback and that you're working to be a better leader not only for you, but for them. You know, you're trying to be a better leader for the team. I think those are all really important qualities to have in a leader that that really help you establish a culture of trust and respect. You know, there's an African proverb that I just love, and it's that if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far you go together and i think that really sums up i think the aspiration that certainly i have for my team and and i think probably most leaders have for their own teams is that we want to go far so so let's band together and go together
0: steph i have to admit i've always enjoyed working with you but as i saw your slide that has the african proverb on it i knew that we were meant to be together because i wrote that up on a whiteboard in our main communication area our main meeting room for the pa program in los angeles I think it's a great quote. I think it just sets the tone for what it's all about. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge that, and I appreciate that about you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Again, that's that's a favorite of mine, and uh, you know, I just I think at our hearts we are all team players. I think that's a that's an underpinning of who we are as PAS. We are we are the penultimate collaborators, and I think that that quote really sums that up.
0: Steph, when you talk about climate assessments, for me, there's the 360 that I talked about earlier, but then there's also the opportunity to bring in an outside consultant that can do a climate survey. We did this at USC as part of our diversity work. And I think it was incredibly helpful to the leadership of the department to assess where we were doing well and what areas we were struggling in. And it just shines a light on the on the aspects that you're just not maybe as in tune to as you should be. I'm curious about your own climate assessment and how you went about doing that. And how would we recommend others find the right people to conduct these assessments?
1: So what do we do next, right? It's really easy to sit around and identify all of the things that could potentially go wrong or that are contributing to maybe a negative climate. And I feel like we've kind of focused a lot on on maybe some of these negative factors. And there's certainly, I, I don't want to say that there's nothing great about PA education because I think anybody could sit around and talk about all the wonderful things about PA education and the gratifying work that we do. But one of the ways that leaders can assess what's happening in their program is to do something called a climate assessment and that can look at a number of different ways. So the, a formal climate assessment is something that's relatively new. In fact, I developed one for this talk and uh, I certainly could make that available if, if we'd like to. The, I had my faculty beta test and it was really interesting. And it's basically a survey around those five categories, the COBRA categories, the communication, opportunity, balance, relationships of respect, and acknowledgement. And it you know just kind of had some subcategories Um, Many of which I've already talked about in this. Again, this is all kind of part of the talk. And I had my faculty just beta test this as a very early test of this instrument. And it was really interesting to kind of see the areas where their perception was that we were, you know, doing really well in and low in. So that is kind of new for us. And I will admit that it's something that after doing the beta test, I really would like to spend some more time and effort and energy into diving into those results a little bit more deeply and exploring those, you know, perhaps as a part of an upcoming retreat. We're going to maybe start looking into some of those areas where collectively the faculty felt that we were not exactly hitting it out of the park. Um, but one of the things, you know, you again mentioned the 360, but I do that as well because I think as leadership, you have to, I talked about being open to constructive feedback before, but, you know, the ARC does not require a 360 evaluation. My institution doesn't require a 360 evaluation, but I have intentionally developed both a faculty and a staff survey that is administered every year. And it looks at a number of different aspects of my leadership, some of them that the ARC requires that, that we assess, but then there's some additional things in there too. And, and it's similar to some of the things that are in this climate survey that I've developed. But for me, it, it's hard, right? It's just like when we have students perform evaluations after courses or after lectures, sometimes the feedback's a little hard to hear. But you don't know what you don't know. And I don't think that you can continue to grow and develop and address deficiencies as a leader until you can know what those things are and you know where those areas are. And you got to have a little bit of thick skin. You know, I always have to be kind of in the right mindset to open those survey results back because, you know, sometimes it is a little tough to hear those things that you're like, you know, you're a lot of times your first response is, oh, what? How dare they say that about me? But then usually when you have some time to kind of sit back and reflect and process on that. You know, there's usually an element to I think I have a great faculty and staff and they they give me really constructive feedback. And I've grown. I've become better. I do believe that I've made myself better in ways that I wouldn't have unless my faculty and staff were really willing to say the hard things and say those to me and say, you know, we we need you to be better on our, on our behalf. And it's been a really, really, really important part of my development as a leader. I spent a fair bit of time kind of identifying all those factors that contribute to burnout and to attrition out of PA education. So let's kind of go quick back through the COBRA mnemonic again and say, okay, so what can we do about it? What are things that, you know, what's the solution to each one of these areas and and the things that could go wrong? How do we address these? How do we be better? So we'll start back through the mnemonic. So starting with communication, establish concrete pathways for consistent, constructive lines of communication. There needs to be a constant flow of communication that is balanced to allow the team to continue to work on effective work and work as a team. There should be transparency around institution level activities and decisions. So creating pathways that the program leadership is both transmitting information from the program to leadership, institutional leadership, as well as allowing the program to understand what's happening at the institutional level, because that can sometimes lend context for why decisions are made that may impact faculty at the program level. Again, considering the importance of that water cooler magic, you know, if no one is ever in the office at the same time and there's no opportunity for some of that informal magic to happen, you know, think about how you might implement informal opportunities for collaborations on a day-to-day basis. As much as we hate forced fun, uh, you know, again, the care and feeding of relationships comes with familiarity. So implementing occasional non-work-related opportunities to build relationships is a really important piece of communication as well and then implementing some purposeful activities so you would ask the question before you know how might programs go about finding you know some of these activities that are like personality assessments, DISC profiles, and a lot of those are available commercially. You know, if you go to the websites, whether that's Gallup Strengths or DISC or Myers-Briggs, you know, there are usually local reps. They can get you in contact with somebody who's a local consultant that can come in. And if you're having like a retreat, they can bring those folks in and work with your team. And and they can be really great team building exercises to implement those. Moving on to the O, uh, Opportunity. Advocate, advocate, advocate. I cannot express enough how important it is for leaders to advocate really on behalf of their team, for support, for personalized faculty development, and not only the the support and the resources for faculty development, but leave the space and time for them to actually do it. Advocating for equitable opportunity for promotion and tenure, making sure that the PA faculty are given equitable consideration for those things. And consider, if you have faculty who are interested in research or scholarly activity, consider awarding some protected research time or protected scholarly time so that they have the time and space to do that as well. Evaluating your program structure, you know, thinking about are there ways that we can create opportunities for tiered advancement? You know, maybe you don't currently have an associate program director role, but you have somebody who is really showing some propensity for leadership qualities and maybe is on a track to maybe someday being the program director. So maybe you create an associate program director role. Are there ways that you can implement some structure within your program to allow people to advance their roles? Working with faculty, I think I mentioned this before, but working with faculty one-on-one to really develop those longitudinal goals. And whether that's towards promotion and tenure or whether they have a scholarly agenda that they would like to develop, you know, working with them and setting some goals and putting some tangible steps in place. And revisiting their progress towards those goals regularly to make sure that they're on the trajectory towards that. And I would say, particularly with new faculty, it's critically important to have a formal orientation and establish early and intentional mentorship for new faculty, you know, giving them some structure, giving them context right out of the shoots. You know, so many of us, when we jumped into PA education, just basically they gave us our office and gave us a computer and said, come along for the ride. You'll figure it out as you come along. And I I think that's not a constructive way to onboard new faculty. And I think it's going to take them twice as long to to catch on and to catch up if you're not giving them those formal opportunities to develop into academicians. For balance, you know, this is a hard one. We're all working hard. There's so much more work for everyone. There's so much more work to be done than there is a time for us to do it. But this, again, kind of goes back to that advocacy. You know, if you don't have enough faculty, then gather data, gather the information that you need to demonstrate that you need more people, that you need more support and more resources. This is an accreditation requirement that you have sufficient faculty and staff. So if you don't have good work balance, if you have more work and your people are overworked and burnt out, then it's your role as a leader to advocate for more resources, whatever that looks like, whether that's human resources or other types of resources. That's your job as the leader to advocate for that. But again, considering ways that you can manage faculty workloads. So considering both work volume and the type of work people are doing, balancing undesirable versus desirable tasks, matching work to personality types. And you know, again, we talked about clear role delineation. Uh, reconsidering the level of flexibility that you're providing. So if you're not currently very flexible with how and when people are able to do their work, talk to your team and say, you know, would would it be easier? Would it be better for you? Would this be a better place to work if you had more control over when and where you accomplish the work that you need to get done? You know, another one that I think my team is working on really hard is finding efficiencies. You know, I find that when we step back and we look at all of the things that we're doing, you know, a lot of times we do things because that's the way we've always done them and it works and we have good outcomes. And so we just keep doing them that way. But You know, if you do a hard look at the totality of the work that you're doing and maybe how your curriculum is structured and what faculty's roles and responsibilities are within that curriculum, if you do a hard look and step back and kind of look at where the time sucks are, you can step back and you go, it's very faculty intensive. It's taken a lot of time. Is there a better way? Can we work smarter and not harder? Is there a better way to do that that wouldn't take so much faculty time and that could, you know, open up some space and some bandwidth? And facilitate schedules that allow people to take time away. You know, we found that, and it's something that we're working on, is that all of the activities from admissions to assessments that require all hands on deck, those things seem to be kind of peppered throughout the schedule in a way that people had a really hard time trying to find a week or a month or, you know, long weekends where they could actually ever get away. And so we're taking a hard look at our curriculum and our program activities to say, Can we stagger some of this stuff so that it's not all just sprinkled evenly across the year and making it virtually impossible for people ever to kind of take time away? And enforce a strict no-contact rule. You know, after hours, weekends, holidays, that should be sacred time. When people are out of the office, they need to have that time away. And so I think, you know, creating hard, fast rules for making sure that time away is truly time away. Relationships and respect, um, you know, this is a hard one. And this is probably just like when you need therapy and relationships in your personal life, you know, there's no one magic bullet that's going to make that better. But there are a lot of things that I think that you can kind of work on that will contribute to improved relationships and uh, that environment of psychological safety. So it's everything from planning for changes in team membership and navigating that transition, being very intentional about that transition. Creating purposeful connection of faculty to communities, both within the institution and in the community, you know, so if you have new faculty who are coming on and maybe you have diverse faculty who come from, you know, a disadvantaged background or they're persons of color or they come from a community that they may not feel they necessarily have a lot of connection to within the program. Well, you know, even if maybe there is not a strong representation of people that look like them or worship like they do or believe the the things that they believe, connecting them with community both within the institution and in the greater community. You know, so perhaps you have someone that you know you can connect into a special interest. Maybe you know that they're in their previous life and their their before they came to you, they were very involved in Habitat for Humanity in their community. You know, get them connected to Habitat for Humanity in the in your community. You know, whether you can connect them in with communities of, you know, religious communities. So connecting them in with their faith communities, their cultural communities, and making sure that they can find that sense of inclusiveness and belonging, not only in your program, but within the greater community as well. You know, developing formal mentorship programs so that people can continue to develop skills and learn from the people that are around them and that have set, you know, have made the mistakes and that have seen successes and that can help them navigate through some of those things as well. Set expectations for respectful interactions at all times. Create that safe space and that psychological space for dissenting opinions. And so that dissenting opinions are not only heard, but considered and are explored as a part of decision-making processes looking for and guarding against microaggressions. You know, ask your faculty what makes them feel marginalized, what makes them feel as though they're not heard or they're not seen or that, you know, the things that are important to them are not being taken seriously or not being reflected in the culture of the program. You know, those are all things. And I I think I could go on and on. There are so many things. But again, you know, I think if you step back and think about your faculty and your staff and your team members as humans, and those relationships as important as your marital relationship as your relationship with your children and your parents these are important relationships because you know you spend a third of your life at work and if you are you know not tending to the care and feeding of the people that are around you it's going to be a, a really miserable place to be so i think taking seriously the the relationships that you have in the workplace can go a long ways towards satisfaction in the workplace and finally with acknowledgement You know, again, I'm going to step back up on that soapbox and let's start benchmarking salaries, academician salaries against practice salaries. Let's ensure that people are paid what they're worth, not only in the clinical setting, but let's start valuing what we do as educators and ensuring that we can, you know, stop the hemorrhage of people out of education and back into the clinical setting because what they're doing isn't valued with, you know, how that's reflected in their salary again implementing formal and informal processes for gratitude and recognition and kevin gave uh, a great a couple of great uh, examples for how how they did that and then finally from an acknowledgement standpoint one thing that i'll advocate for there's an old business principle it's called mbwa and you know that's short for management by walking around And I don't think I can overstate how important it is to just as a leader of a team to just be present, to be, you know, stopping in the doorways of, you know, the members of the team and saying, hey, how's it going today? How's your weekend? What'd you do? What are you working on right now? And, you know, what are your challenges? What's what's keeping you from really being successful in what you're doing and being connected, being present, being there and, you know, understanding what each member of your team is working on and you know what they're doing well and you know what they're proud of and 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 where you can help them. So I think that MBWA principle, that management by walking around is critically important. So that in a nutshell is is kind of the presentation that I delivered at PAEA, at least largely reflective of what I delivered at PAEA. So I hope that people found this helpful. I think that there's a lot here. I, I know this one ran a little bit longer than our normal podcast episodes do, but There's a lot to unpack and certainly I think, you know, any one of these topics we could go on and on about and we could probably have an individual podcast episode about, but I hope that people found this helpful and certainly I'm always available to brainstorm through things and uh, happy to share. So that's what I've got for this episode.
0: Well, Steph, thank you so much for being willing to share this information with everybody today. I think obviously the people that were able to attend your session were very positive about the aspects that you provided, and I'm, I'm certainly glad that I got a chance to learn from you here since I was at a different session that day, and, and I just think what you offer as a leader and, and, and the perspectives you bring are really wonderful, fresh, and accurate from my own experiences, and I thank you for taking the time. We want to thank our guest, Stephanie Vandermullen, for her time and for sharing these key insights related to setting a great culture for a program. Steph's own leadership experiences, coupled with her leadership for PAEA, has led to an impressive array of tools she uses to guide her program, as well as the program she helps in her leadership training. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Southern Illinois University Medicine online doctor of medical science degree for the support of this podcast. Visit siumed.edu forward slash DMSC to learn more and apply. Tune in next time as we continue the conversation with our PA colleagues and leaders around the world.